The Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group is an award-winning team with hundreds of successful transactions under their belt. Through their national network, the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group works hard to help families realize the dream of home ownership. As a community advocate, Cynthia Joyner is proud to be the presenting sponsor of Jazz in the Park Huntsville. You can find the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group on the web at CynthiaJoyner.com. Jazz basically is a feeling of spontaneity. But you know it when you hear it. You can't put a point on what the definition is, but you know it when you hear it. That's the best definition I can give it to you. It's basically improv, but more geared towards spontaneity. Jazz. Jazz. Jazz with Kenny Anderson. National recording artist and saxophonist D. Lucas has been steadily growing his brand and fan base, beginning with Remembrance in 2004. Thereafter, it has been a steady showcase of unique stylings with Something to Ride to, 2007, Standing Room Only, 2010, Rebirth of the Smooth, 2012, The Smooth Factor, 2014, Going Deeper 2016, The Sweet Spot 2017, Going Left in 2018, and the time is now 2020. Welcoming to the Jazz with Kenny Anderson podcast platform, my man, D. Lucas. What's going on, brother? All right, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's good to have you. You doing all right? Yeah, you know, you know, as well as expected, you know, with the pandemic and all that, but I'm blessed to be here, man. It's 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 good. Well, first things first, uh, I just happened to see a post that you just made because I know that you're very active on social media. It's a place where people can certainly connect with you and learn about the great work that you do. But you posted that your single, Full Tilt, has landed on the Smooth Jazz Network Top 100 Best of 2021. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm really uh, very, very proud of that record. A lot of work and a lot of great resources were put into that record. So we really enjoyed the, uh, the success, but we I owe it all to a lot of people, including the fans. It was very receptive, so very proud of this record here. Well, let's stay right there for a minute and tell me a little bit about that particular project. Yeah, uh, well, the record uh, was initially released in 2020. So in essence, it really record, it was released during the pandemic. Um, I would say, and I don't really like to, categorize which album is the best, but I would say you could definitely see the growth. Uh, overall, is by far my best record to date. Uh, and I think a lot of that is lent because of the great producers that I worked with and, and some of the, the musicians that were put in where it was a collaborative effort. And it also, being that the record was released during uh, the pandemic, it allowed me to really become more creative during that time, more so when we were shut, when everything in the world was shut down. So a lot of the energy had to move from the performing end to the creative side and the fruits of that labor came out, man. I've talked to a lot of performers who've expressed that same sentiment that the pandemic gave them um, a different perspective in a lot of ways. It gave mm-hmm. them time to refocus and reset. 
in some other kind of ways and really uh, tap into that creative source of energy that oftentimes, as you said, is primarily poured into one thing or another or rather than another. But with this uh, situation where, you know, there are no performances, no concert dates and you're basically, you know, kind of tied down you have a greater a reservoir. And it sounds like you had that same experience. Right. Well, you know, as most artists, we tour and we record. So there's somewhat of a balancing act that we have to maintain. Uh, if we just toured all the time, we would never get a record out. So you have to have some type of balancing act between both worlds of creating and performing. However, uh, like, like I said earlier, uh, the pandemic really forced a lot of energy towards the performance, uh, towards the, uh, the recording side. And it really allowed me to re to be able to tap into what I like, what I want to accept on this record. Uh, I had more time to give it a more, a more final say so on the end results of every song. So I'm very proud of this record, but it's also uh, a, a gateway to more things to come. What have you learned through the pandemic? Um, realistically, I learned through the pandemic that you have to plan properly plan for things like this, even though you don't see it coming, but there are some things that you have to get in order because it can happen again. Uh, now on the more realistic side of things, it really showed me how unsanitized society is. Mm. If that really makes sense. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of things we've gotten away from in terms of taking care of uh, our, our bodies uh, or we're not as clean as we thought we were. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of things also were exposed in terms of our health because the uh, COVID really taps into, it, it affects everyone, but it really affects a lot of people that has underlying conditions, health conditions. And when, when you saw the numbers, then that resonates on, oh, wow, society is really unhealthy. So it really showed us we need to get on the good foot in terms of being invested in our health because the health is the greatest wealth for us. Well, to that point, I think one of the things that was magnified last year was that the numbers of flu cases went down significantly, which said a lot to me about the point that you're making now, that we were less healthy prior to that because we were not sanitizing as much. We were not masking as much, we were not separating as much. And that fact that we have been in that space for so long, we took a lot of things for granted that we yes. did not necessarily appreciate or value. Right. And so that certainly is a very interesting point. Um, has the pandemic changed your perspective as it relates to you as a musician? Um, going even beyond what you talked about, planning and uh, having your house in order and positioning yourself in various ways, has it changed you as a musician? Um, yes, um, but in a good way, in a positive way. Um, it just re it reinforces that you have to be prepared for change in general. Uh, we were already, as musicians, preparing for change for technology in terms of how we do business. But I think also the pandemic also prepared us on how change can affect us the career-wise career overall, uh, financially, uh, 
with our loved ones, uh, and also the management side of your life with your family. So I just think that that really changed because sometimes, you know, I know for me, uh, I was averaging between 80 to 100 uh, performances a year. And at the same time, I valued taking my son to practice, taking my daughter to practice. So the balancing act was there, but also it, the, the, the the pandemic really resonated that much more importance of, uh, you know, we, we may not be here tomorrow, so value it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a lesson that I hope has not been lost on anyone during this process as we look at uh, the numbers still uh, being significant in terms of people being affected, 800,000 plus Americans who've died from this disease and mm -hmm. so much more. So this is still a very real thing. And I, I believe that is most other things that have this type of an impact that causes us to really assess what life is all about. Right. That there are lots of life lessons to learn. You know what? I oftentimes bury the headline and I did it specifically so that we can at least hear the first part of what you had to say about uh, this uh, significant accomplishment on the chart. Uh, I wanted to acknowledge the fact that you're a homeboy of sorts. Uh, the Morgan County, Limestone County, Huntsville, Madison County territory is your stomping ground. Tell me a little bit about your connection to that area. Yeah, I uh, grew up uh, in the small town Tanner, Tanner, Alabama. Uh, Limestone County. Uh, but I, I tell you, no matter where I go, I always proudly say where I'm from because it, it, it's, the, it's the people there. And I'm not saying just Tanner, but Huntsville, like you say, the shows, North Alabama, those people molded me who I am today. Uh, so when I left, you know, the, the area to, and I moved to Atlanta, it really prepared me to live on my own because I come from proud people. I come from a proud environment. Uh, come from people that's very uh, passionate. And, and you can see it in, in the community. They're, they're very passionate about sports and what have you, but it prepares you for life. So I owe a lot to the people I grew up with. And every time I come back home, and I love coming back home to perform because I don't get a chance to come home as much, but when I do, it's like a reunion. So I really love home and I miss the people. There's always a crazy buzz when uh, there's a D. Lucas performance or a D. <laughs> D. Lucas sighting in this area, man. People right. just get fired yeah. up man because they know uh, yeah. a, a favorite son is coming home <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i really love coming back home uh in, in, in so many ways i've been in atlanta for 30 years and i i'm still pondering well should i come back home or should i stay or where i want to relocate but i'm really <laughs> feeling the huntsville area because it's growing and it's almost as if i don't know it anymore mm. <laughs> i mean mm. almost if i don't know i said wow i mean where have I been? Because this is not the same Huntsville that I knew when, when I left. <laughs> I mean, but it's all positive. I mean, it's yeah. almost like a little Atlanta, yeah. uh, but it's very positive. It's very progressive. It's everything mm -hmm. I really like about the city. I mean, it's very, it's really good. So I, I really miss home in those regards. Well, who knows, man? You may end up back in the area. So uh, yeah, I know that. That would be a bonus for us. So uh, <laughs> we'll see how it plays out. Let's talk a little bit about your music roots. I'm always uh, interested in learning how a musician got their start. Tell well, me a little okay. bit about your beginnings. Well, my, my uh, beginnings was very, very unique. Uh, it, it's definitely not the, the traditional path because 
most artists or musicians, they started as an adolescent. Uh, you know, for me, I did not start my musical uh, prowl until I was 28. That's when I bought my first saxophone at age 28. Because when I was growing up, I was more into sports. And I grew up in a household where um, it, was, it was either sports or band. And the communities were more rallied around sports, so I got on the bandwagon. <laughs> I got on the bandwagon. So I, I did sports, and then I went off to college to the University of North Alabama. But I did not uh, pursue music until I moved to Atlanta. And it was then where I used to go out to a lot of the jazz clubs and a lot of the musicians that I really connected with. That's what really developed my hunger. And all I was doing at the time was just working my nine to five in corporate. And I said, you know what? I'm going to try. This is the time now because I had just the nine to five. So I had plenty of time to really pursue it. I always wanted to do it. I always mm -hmm. wanted to do it because my family on my mother's side, my, uh, my maternal side, they're, they're gospel singers. So the musical trait is there. Uh, I grew up as a DJ in college. So the musical love, the love for music and all styles of music was there. Uh, but it wasn't until I per uh, purchased my first saxophone and uh, basically just started teaching myself, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, uh, and then I would have a musician here or there would kind of give me some pointers, but it was basically coming home every day, ear training, and I basically learned how to read, learn how to uh, write music, but I used to do a lot of uh, enrichment. I used to take a lot of enrichment courses. Uh, and, and at the time it wasn't online, you have to do some private lessons or go to Berkeley for like a summer sax workshop. Th those things really helped me. And then just listen to some great, uh, great musicians like Gerald Albright, Grover Washington. You can't help but to get better when you hear that kind of thing. Or once you get put on in, in, in a deep water where you join a band and they put you out front and you don't have any experience. So it's either sink or swim. So I was on the fast track. I was on the fast track and I really learned a lot in a short period of time. That is really an amazing backstory. And uh, not only am I fascinated by what you said, but I don't know, man, at 64, is it too late for me? No, it's not. And I, and I say that on a lot of, uh, at a lot of my event, uh, uh, performances. Uh, I, I, one of the favorite things I like about performing, Kenny, is that after the show, I meet and greet people. And my testament is to them, it's never too, it's never too late to pursue what you want. Mm -hmm. Because I did it. And I did it from scratch. I did it with these mm -hmm. bare hands. And, and But it's all about desire and discipline. Uh, so it's never too late to answer your question. It's <laughs> never too late. But I mean, it, it's, it's not easy, right. but, it, but it's attainable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the little known secrets about my life, and I've shared this with at least one other person on this podcast, was that when I was in the sixth grade, mm -hmm. I was attending a public school and I actually joined the band and I played the sax for one year. And I was not a bad sax uh, performer. In fact, I remember getting a solo in one of the year end concerts mm -hmm. and thought that the next year I'd probably start taking this thing to the next level. And I changed schools the next year they did not have a band and I've never picked up a sax since then. But of course my love of music, uh, my admiration for musicians always has this curiosity in my mind that hmm, maybe one day I'll, I'll go back to that thing. I think you should. I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing, but at the same time, whether, 
whatever reason you decide to pursue it, uh, the love for music, the love for the art will, will really prevail everything else. Uh, whether it's for you, if you're trying to get into a career or for compensation or whatever, or just to, uh, just, uh, just to spend time, just, uh, you know, time or passion. It's the love for the music is going to make the, the learning part that much more easier. Mm. I, I'm thinking now, you know, I got a little bucket. List, I'm, I'm, you know, Go put together. I'm yeah. feeling inspired, man. Let's talk about that some more for sure. Yes, indeed. <laughs>
That was D. Lucas playing To Be Continued. And now, back to Kenny's conversation with D. Lucas on Jazz with Kenny Anderson. So talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, getting started later in your career in, ter- in terms of your age, um, contrary to what many musicians do. What was your vision at that time? Were you thinking about this as something that you would at some point begin recording, touring and more? What was your what was your thinking at that time in terms of the direction? Right. So when I was in the phase of purchasing the home for the first time, uh learning the theory part of it that first that first three years of just grinding my mindset was eventually i want to i want to become a performing artist i want to make records because i always i always love the creative side i've I've always wanted to be an artist i wanted to have something to say through my voice and that voice can be through an instrument so the first three years was about learning as much, uh, learn as much as you can. But what happened was a blessing in disguise, Kenny, because after three years, and three years is really no time in terms of learning, but what happened was I met a fraternity brother that I knew back in the day. He so happened to live in the neighborhood in, in the same subdivision here in Atlanta, and he went to Alabama State, and we caught up, and he had a band. He had a band he was playing here in town. And he saw what I was doing, and he offered me to perf- to perform in his band as a saxophonist, as a side guy, not a front guy. So what it allowed me to do was basically get experience performing live, mm-hmm. playing in a section, mm-hmm. learning music, learning songs. Uh, also, along with the experience come learning to dispel stage fright, all that. But at the same time, you learn music business. I saw the, the importance of putting together a press kit, putting together uh, the paperwork to do a record, uh, building relationships with uh, club promoters, uh, club owners, and also radio stations. I learned all of that in a short period of time. So I did that band for two years. We put a record out, did really well. And it was then where, okay, now I'm ready to try my own. Uh, so that's where I uh, created a trio. Uh, the band was called Expressions. And we uh, formed that band on Millennium Night, uh, December 31st, 1999. Mm. It was a trio. Uh, did that for two years as a band. Put a record out, did really well. In fact, my first major event was at the Von Braun Civic Center. I opened up for Nina Freeline. It was, jazz, it was jazz in the park. I'm not jazz in the park. Jazz in June. Whoa! That was my first major show. Mm. Uh, so we did that two years, and I, I did. I always do annual assessments on how well and what I'm what I'm trying to do career wise, and it kind of gravitated to 2004. That's when I was ready to do a solo record. Start my solo career, and also wanted to own my own music, create my own label. I just wanted to do it all and have control of it all. And 2004 was my debut of where we are today. So mm-hmm. between 2004 and 2021, 
nine CDs. Uh, I went through, I've created two labels and I created one final rec uh, record label, which ODL Music is the record label now. So I've always had a vision of owning my own because I studied people that came before me. Mm. Uh, artists that were on record labels. Some artists did very well, but I also saw where artists kind of got shafted. Mm. Uh, they got taken advantage of because they didn't understand the business side of it or they didn't have the control of their uh, intellectual property, I should say. And mm. I didn't want to be that person. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not want to be that person. I had gone to school, studied business, uh, and I just had a business mindset. Own what you know and know what you own. Uh, that's going to be at the long term. That's going to, at the end of the day, mm -hmm. not thinking short term, the long vision is you're going to make more money long term. And I'm okay with the sacrifices and everything that comes in between because I know what I'm doing day to day. I see I see all the nuts and bolts that I put in that that's giving me the output I want. So I'm very, very uh, proud of where I am uh, career-wise. I have a long way to go, but I'm enjoying the process. Yeah, that's great. And it is a long game, and it's all about establishing that legacy, as you're yeah. saying, you know, something that you cannot just be a part of, but that you can literally own. And I think that's so significant in terms uh -huh. of what you're saying. Uh, D, you were a runner-up in the 2007 Capital Jazz Festival competition. You've opened for a plethora of artists such as Boney James, Norman Brown, uh, Ronnie Laws, Hugh Masekela, Greg Karukas, Peter White. I mean, the list goes on and on. People Bryson, the Manhattans, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that, of course, has always had to be a very uh, energizing experience to have those opportunities. And as you think about your journey, I know we've talked a little bit about the influence of uh, people like Gerald Albright and uh, Grover Washington Jr. Are there others in the industry that have influenced you in profound ways? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's cross genres too. Uh, let's say let's stay in the uh, contemporary jazz field. Uh, Grover, uh, Ronnie Laws, uh, George Howard. Um, we can go back a little deep. Uh, David Sanborn, uh, mm -hmm. traditional jazz, of course, Coltrane, uh, Miles Davis. But mm -hmm. then I also influenced by non-jazz music uh, were like the R&B because if you were a product of the 70s, you were exposed to multi-genres. Multi so Parliament Funkadelic, Ooh. Stevie Wonder, <laughs> uh, Cameo. So, wow. I mean, the Carpenters because those radio stations, they lent multi-formats. Mm. So you heard Genesis. But after Genesis, after that record, after the Eagles, then you would hear AWB. <laughs> then after that, Spinners. So, and Gladys. So you could, I mean, the influence was there in terms of many styles. And of course, you can't, you can't bypass Irwin and Fire and Steve mm. Wonder. So, mm. but, I mean, I can always say I was very appreciative of that era because I get my, I was so exposed to so many different styles of music, man. Mm. Yeah, you know what? I, I feel a little bit guilty sometimes because every generation claims their particular time frame as the best music that was produced. Right. But man, the 70s? Oh, my goodness. Oh, come on, man. That's it right there. Yeah. Um, you know, we discuss this all the time. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we really do. I think 
And the reason why the seventy sound the way is it, the way it did because coming out of the turbulent sixties, mm. people just wanted to cut loose. <laughs> I just think people just really want to cut loose from the turbulent sixties. But yeah. I think, in all fairness, I think it got better just as much as it did trending downward because I think some of the best songwriting was in the eighties. Yeah. When you think about uh, when you think about. Uh, uh, Luther Vandross. Some of the songs that they performed, th those were good songwriting songs. Mm. Uh, but I think in the 70s, the arrangements, I think it was really about the music. Mm. Because I really, I think it was about good, feel-good music. The mm. lyrics were good in the 70s as well, but I think it was all about feeling good in the 70s and we, because we needed that. And yeah. I think when bands kind of uh, kind of decreased and more people started going solo in the 80s, that's when you start seeing more songwriting. Mm. Mm. And of course, the 90s, it, I mean, that's I think that's a different uh, conversation because not only did the music change, but the times change. Yeah. And I think yeah. the music kind of reflected the times too. Yeah. I'm a pure funk dude. There's no question about that. So Absolutely. I'm just going to throw out a couple of things right here. My two top funk songs of all time, and this could change tomorrow now, but at this moment, my two top funk songs, Cameos, I Just Want to Be. Uh -huh. it, if, if, it, if I hear it anywhere, I'm going to start dancing. So, uh -huh. I mean, if, if I heard it in church, look out. There may be a praise dance coming from me. <laughs> and also, <laughs> and also, also uh, uh, Knee Deep Parliament Funkadelic. Right. That is my jam, man. If if you ever saw me, if you ever if that ever happens when I'm driving in the car, yeah, I need to probably pull over, man, because I'm 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 at it whenever that song man. comes on, man. Well, I tell you what, I can double down with you on that because <laughs> before I even before I even cut my teeth into contemporary jazz, I was a funketeer. I mean, <laughs> I was a bootsy rubber band funketeer. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I mean, I can't pick one song. I mean, just the first three albums, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay. The first three albums, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> and it was so bad, Kenny, because here's the thing. This is a this is a, a fun fact here. I was so encapsulated by that man. I wanted my neighbor to hand carve me a bass guitar, a star shaped bass guitar, so I could learn how to play it. I was just, I was, I was nuts, man. I was done. I'm with you. I'm with you completely, man. And and I still think, um, you know, I see these interviews with Bootsy talking about, uh, yeah. you know, his career and his history. I think he's yeah. one of the most amazing performers ever, but yeah. he's still one of the coolest dudes ever, man. His interviews yeah. are absolutely amazing. And, you know, the thing is, I think what made him who he is, and I think a lot of the humbleness come from, playing in bands like James Brown. Yeah, that's right. Because James right. Brown, I mean, they treated them, I mean, James Brown was no joke. So you had to learn the music. You was you you couldn't get in this band if you couldn't play, first of all. <laughs> so you understood music right there. So, but in terms of music business and uh, the, the love for music, I think a lot of that came from his roots of playing in James Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. 100%. Tell me a little bit about the project The Time Is Now. Okay. Uh, produced by multi-producers. Uh, uh, I can give you uh, Adam Hawley, mm. uh, Daryl Williams, bassist uh, Daryl Williams, uh, 
David P. Stevens, uh, Gino Rosario, mm-hmm. and uh, and those were the producers. And I co-produced with them uh, some of the featured artists, uh, Blake Aaron on guitar, mm-hmm. uh, of course David P. and David uh, and Daryl Williams uh, also was a feature. Um, it's a seven. Well, how many songs on there? It's a uh, seven. Seven songs on there. Uh, had one cover tune that did really well with very little promotion, but I got a Soul, uh, Soul Cafe Award. Uh, the, the the cover tune, Love Saw It, that was originally done by Karen White and Babyface. Mm. Um, again, the record was released in 2020. And as of to date, uh, I've been very fortunate to have four radio singles off of it. Mm. Uh, Full Tilt was the third single released. It was uh, released in March of this year. And it was my highest ranking uh, song to date. It, it mm. charted uh, in Billboard, top 20. Uh, it, it did really well. And I just uh, very uh, amazed by the record. Congratulations on all that great success. I mean, it's got to be inspiring after the grind that you've been on for so many years now, the consistency in the uh, industry has been amazing. Yeah. Um, I, I could not let this conversation end without reflecting a little bit on your relationship to Jazz in the Park, our very dear friend Bernard Lockhart who passed. Um, anytime I have a chance to uh, invoke his name and honor his memory, I look for an opportunity to do that. You knew Bernard, had a yeah. great relationship with him. Yeah. Uh, can you just reflect on uh, Bernard and his legacy for a moment? Absolutely. I think uh, Bernard, Bernard Lockhart really represented the artist. Uh, he really represented, he really championed the artist. And give you a, a small story here. I think my first major show, and I think his first major show, before he started Jazz in the Park, he did a concert at Carver Hall, Carver Theater, Alabama Jazz Hall of Fame. And he had Greg Karukas as the headliner. He wanted me to come on as the opener. And as he dug into my press kit, he saw the work, uh, my body work at that time. That was 07. And, you know, he told me, you know what, D? I'm going to make you co-headliner because you're just as you're just as good as anybody else coming. So... He made Greg Karukas and D. Lucas co-headline, co-bill for the show. That was so cool. And that right there kind of set the tables for Jazz in the Park from what he told me. And Greg, uh, Bernard used to call me every year uh, after Jazz in the Park, and he asked me, D., are there any other artists out there that you think uh, would like to play Jazz in the Park? You know what I like, D. You know, he said that. You know what I like. Uh, so I would give him some names, and I even mentioned Adam Hawley as one. And you know, he really took care of the artist. Um, I mean, we didn't have any issues with him, and you know, we're really gonna miss him because we really need more promoters like him. Uh, it's one thing to put on an event for the people, but it's another thing to make sure that artists are taken care of. And there's a lot of backstory that goes with artists and how they're treated. Some, you know, we're taking care of very well. Some, you know, we have to be careful on who we're dealing with because sometimes you can end up on a short end of the stick when logistics are not taken care of. He was not that one. 
he was one guy that made sure everything was done correctly on both ends because it was a win-win. And when we saw that as artists, we wanted to make sure that his event was fine. So it wasn't about we get what we need, we go home. We wanted to make sure that Jazz in the Park continues every year. And man, he built that thing. He built that thing from just Birmingham to throughout the state of Alabama. I mean, that speaks volumes. And I just really, I, I really hope that it continues to grow. And I just hope we continue to honor him by doing it every year. That's beautiful, man. Um, what a tremendous legacy. And of course, uh, Bernard was my mentor in this work, uh, sharing his gift of Jazz in the Park with us, uh, entrusting us with his baby and mm -hmm. helping us to learn uh, the value of what he was trying to do. These incredible music experiences and these beautiful music venues, free mm -hmm high quality professional events for the community, something that he was absolutely dedicated to and committed to. And we want to absolutely honor him by continuing that. Dee, this has been a great conversation, man. I could talk to you forever. And I know we've been talking about some exciting things and hopefully the next time we talk, we'll have some more exciting news to share with people about what we want to do here in the city of Huntsville in the North Alabama region. In the meantime, though, tell people how they can connect with you. As I said, you're very active on social media, website, and that type of thing. Give people some information about how to connect with you. Absolutely. You can start with my official website at www.dlucas.com. That's D-E-E-L-U-C-A-S.com. Of course, on the uh, social media side of things, uh, uh, Facebook, uh, my handle is dlucassax. Uh, Instagram, dlucas.sax. Twitter, uh, dlucas. And also which is a growing thing as well, YouTube, because I'm beginning to put more content out there, fresh content. So definitely subscribe to my U uh, YouTube channel, which is D-E-E, -E, the number one L-U-C-A-S. So that's D-1-Lucas. D, always a pleasure, brother. Looking forward to talking with you soon. Likewise, looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. Jazz with Kenny Anderson is a partnership with Jazz in the Park Huntsville and is produced by David Person, for David Person Media, LLC. The theme music was written and produced by Kelvin Wooten. Damian Malone provides podcast platform management. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Jazz with Kenny Anderson. The Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group is an award-winning team with hundreds of successful transactions under their belt. Through their national network, the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group works hard to help families realize the dream of home ownership. As a community advocate, Cynthia Joyner is proud to be the presenting sponsor of Jazz in the Park Huntsville. You can find the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group on the web at CynthiaJoyner.com.